alive. It's powerful. Lord, it has the ability to get down into the deepest of places and to minister, Lord, uh, in those places where we really need you to minister to us. And so, Father, for, uh, for this next set of minutes, we pray, Lord, that we would be fully here, so to speak, ready to receive from you, challenged where we need to be challenged, comforted where we need to be comforted, encouraged where we need to be encouraged. Lord, you know what your word can do. We ask that you would do it today. And we pray this in Jesus' name today. Amen. And every day we pray this prayer in his name. Well, uh, the book written to Timothy. Now, 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 4 in particular, Paul shifts a little bit. So Paul had been, remember that, that key statement that Paul made, look, if I can't get there in time, you'll know how to manage the congregation. Get started without me. Uh, and so he was, you know, talking about the congregation as a whole and the things that are going on in that congregation as a whole. Now, as Paul has shifted here in chapter 4, what we're going to begin to notice is it's a lot more um, specific advice to Timothy. From one minister to another, so to speak. From an older minister, so how do you spend your days? Well, let me explain to you, you know, what I've kind of picked up and here's what I do. And so Paul now is going to be giving Timothy some specific advice as he labors as the pastor of this congregation. And it's particularly in the context of what we looked at last week, verses 1 through 5, which, remember, was that there was a coming apostasy. You know, the Spirit has expressly said that in latter times some will depart from the faith. And so, Timothy, in light of that, let me give you some specific advice as to what it is that you should be doing. First, he says in verse 6, notice, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, if you teach them, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And so we might call that the first section, which is preach the word, Timothy. That's what you're called to do. Secondly, look at verse 12. We're going to get to this uh, next week. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We might call that section, practice the word. Don't just preach it. Don't just teach it to people. Live it out yourself. And then finally, look down to verse 15. Uh, he encourages him to keep moving forward. You don't come to a place where you can settle on your laurels. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in these things so that all may see your progress. So Timothy, you know, you're going to get to this place where people are going to think you have all the answers, and there's going to be a struggle where you're going to begin thinking from time to time, I've arrived. I've learned everything I need to learn. Now I can just sort of coast in my walk with the Lord. And the reality is there needs to be this continually moving forward in our relationship with the Lord. You should be growing in your relationship with God every single day of your life till you come to the end of your life. Just because you hit 50, 60, 70, 80, just because you've been in the Lord 10, 20, 30, 40 years, just because you've advanced and now you're the pastor, you're still growing. There's still stuff God has to do in you as he changes you. So he tells Timothy there, keep making progress. Now today we are going to focus our attention primarily on verses 6 through 10. And again, in our last study, we looked at verses 1 through 5, this coming departure. Again, that verse from verse 1 is the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. And so in light of that, Timothy, here's Paul's exhortations for this young man. He starts in verse 6. He says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy, and it is deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially the Savior of those who believe." Well, knowing that the days are coming when people will knowingly wander from the faith, and not just any old Christian, but even the leaders of these congregations, 
based on what we learned last week, knowing that people will knowingly wander away from that, Paul here tells Timothy how he should respond. Now, Timothy could say, oh, well, people are going to wander away. You know, I'll do my best, you know, kind of thing. And I'm not going to wander away, and I'll just go where I need to go. Or Timothy could say, well, you know what? I'm going to make sure the least number of people in my care wander away. Are you with me, what I'm saying by that is? So he could just say, well, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Or he can invest himself to minimize it occurring in the congregation that he's been called to lead. And that's what Paul, obviously, that's what Paul tells him to do. Take steps to make sure it doesn't happen. And if it does, that it's minimized as much as possible. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, the way that he can do that is by first being aware of the problem, right? You got to be aware of it. Know that this is going to be happen. Be on your guard. That's what Paul pointed out in verses two through four. What are people teaching? What are they people saying? And so the the local pastor should be aware of some of the teachings that are out there, some of the teachings that are influencing the congregation, so that he can begin to present what he needs to present, so people are on their guard against that teaching. So that's one thing. He told us that, verses 1 through 5. Be aware, this is what they're teaching. Be on your guard against it. Secondly, though, Paul exhorts Timothy to give himself to the teaching of the congregation and specifically to the teaching of the truth. And so you have this, be aware of the false, talk about it, you know, make reference to this false here so people can be aware of it, but then he draws him now, as we're going to see, to the truth itself. He says that Timothy needed to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Notice that he himself had been following. So we'll read it. He says in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers. Now that's if you teach these things. That's what he's talking about. If you teach these things, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And that is the primary responsibility of the local minister or pastor. Now, in our congregation, we have three, three of us that are serving as pastors, and a lot of us, really, that are serving in that role. My primary responsibility is to be the teacher of God's word here at our congregation and to be teaching it and to be investing myself into it. And how come he doesn't get out and mow the lawn more? He should. And how come he's not vacuuming more? He should. How come he's not doing all the visits? He should. Those things are important. Those things need to be done, and I try to get to those particular things. But if that means I need to neglect the teaching of God's word, and in my case, the study of it, so that I know what I'm talking about when I come to it, then our congregation will suffer as a result. The primary responsibility of the teaching pastor is to be teaching. Now, I used the word minister a moment ago. I don't typically refer to myself as a minister if people say, are are you a minister? I say, yeah, kind of, you know, this sort of thing. It's not a word that I, I tend to use here, but it is a word that a number of our translations have used here. So the one I'm using is the English Standard Version, and it says about halfway through, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. A number of the versions will use there the word minister, and it's a perfectly acceptable word to use. It's just I tend to shy away from it. And the reason why I tend to shy away from it is because a lot of times we think of of minister with a capital M, and we give them a nice parking spot, and everybody is on their best behavior because the minister is here, you know, this sort of thing. And I think we're missing the point of it. When Paul uses the word minister, it's the same word that was translated elsewhere as deacon, or in this instance here, it's the word that is translated as servant. So Paul is not thinking of the position, he's thinking of the work. He's thinking of what they're doing, they're serving, they're ministering. He says, and so if you give yourself to these things, if you put these things before the brother, brothers, you will be a good servant. So serving the congregation by teaching the congregation. And so in light of this coming and growing apostasy, Timothy uh, had certain responsibilities to the congregation, and that was to major on the teaching of that congregation. He needed to major on the whole counsel of God's word. 
You remember, again, we've referenced this a lot of times, but when Paul was out traveling about, he was going to make his way back to Jerusalem, you know, which was a thousand miles away or so by ship, um, and he's up near Greece today and Italy and all that stuff, and he's going to make his way back to Jerusalem. He's not coming back tomorrow. You know, it's going to take him a long time to get back, if ever. And so he calls all the Ephesian elders. He says, come meet me at port because I, I need to have a quick meeting with you one last time before I go. Acts 20. We've talked about this a few times now in our study here. While he was talking with them and encouraging them as to what they were doing, he, to be doing, he said to them, you remember when I was with you, I did not shriek from de- shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word. That's what he did with those Ephesian elders. That's what he's now calling Timothy to do with these Ephesian elders, present to them the whole counsel of God's word. And so there is certainly a time And there are a lot of pastors, maybe once a year or so, where they will sort of do like a prophecy update, or they'll do something like, you know, what in the world are people teaching update, you know, one of those things. And they'll focus a little bit on a lot of those false teaching ideas that are making their way through the church, and they're showing up on, you know, the television stations, or they're in the popular book that people might be reading, and they're a little bit off. And they're moving in a direction that is toward that departure that Paul talked about. So there are pastors that will do that maybe every once in a while so people are aware. They cannot be doing that every single week. We call these discernment ministries. And discernment ministries are really good at pointing out what everybody is doing wrong. And in in many cases, they're right. But we can't do it over and over and over and over again. What we need to begin to do is teach the truth. I've told the story when I used to be a bank teller, we had like a 30-second class on counterfeit money. And then the rest of the time of that day was spent on real money. Because if you get so used to real money, you're counting quickly, whoa, what was that one? And you can feel it, you can look at it, you can know it, the counterfeit. The better you know the real one, the truth, you'll begin to pick out those other ones. What's wrong with it? I don't know. I don't know exactly what's wrong with it, but I got this little antenna feel. And then you can begin to dig in and study because it's not the real one. Timothy's primary focus was not to become an expert in the false. It was to be an expert in the truth. People refer to this as positive doctrine. This is what we do believe, not always what we don't believe. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And so Timothy, as he transitions here, he says, look, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, a good minister of Christ Jesus. Again, serving through teaching. And we looked earlier in our study of 1 Timothy, you have some that were raised up to be elders and all of the qualifications for those people. And the qualifications for those folks, remember, it was character qualifications, not degrees and all this other kind of stuff, character qualifications. Then you had the deacons and the role of the deacons and what they do and how they serve in a very physical way. And what are the qualifications of it? We gotta be strong. No, it wasn't that. You have to have character to serve in those positions. Remember, the only difference between a deacon and an elder as far as character qualifications was the elder needed to be able to teach because that's their primary responsibility. And so the elder, the pastor teaches and does other stuff. The deacon physically cleans around all that kind of stuff, visits the widows and so on, and they do that. Both are serving, just in different ways. And it's very important that the minister or the pastor will be giving themselves. Paul says, if you do give yourself to the teaching, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. The minister will be just that, a servant. And whereas they may not be the one vacuuming and may not be the one mopping and may not be the one doing all the visits, they will certainly be the one willing to do all of those things. Because if they're not willing to do all of those things, then they're not truly a servant. The only thing they want to do is stand up in front of other people, be on your guard, and be careful. Timothy's primary responsibility needed to be the pastor of a church, a teaching pastor, but he needed to be a servant even as he did that. And so he goes on, he being Paul, in verse 6, again, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, 
you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Notice that, that you have followed. If Timothy was going to be a good servant of Christ, he himself had to remain a follower of God's word. A lot of times what begins to happen, maybe even as like parents sometimes, Christian parents trying to raise up our kids, we begin to lecture everybody else as to how they should be responding to God's word and what they should be doing to God's word. And we stop kind of lecturing ourselves and teaching ourselves and applying it to ourselves. It has to begin there. And so Timothy here, or excuse me, Paul here says to Timothy about this good doctrine that he's been teaching, he says that you yourself have followed, and you'll see, and are following. Timothy was to be practicing what it was he was preaching. You know, a lot of times you hear people will say something like, well, don't look at what I do, just listen to what I say. Well, that will destroy your credibility. As a parent, it does. As a pastor, it will. As a youth leader, it will. You need to be living these things out as well. Timothy was to be uh, not only knowledgeable of the word, but applying the word. And so Paul, he says that you have followed. The last point here in verse 6 that catches my attention is Paul's use of the word trained there. Maybe your version uses the word uh, nourished instead. Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant, being trained in the words of the faith, being nourished in the words of the faith. Now, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. But we all know how important good nourishing food can be, don't we? I rarely eat it, but we all know it. We know that we should be doing it and how important good nourishing food is and can be for a person's physical health, despite the fact that we don't always abide by it. Well, the same thing applies to our spiritual health. If you keep eating junk food spiritually, it will have an impact on your walk with Christ. And if you just keep nibbling a little bit here, a little bit there sort of thing, Small amounts of food, you, you take your daily bread and you read the, and I'm not, I'm, I look like I was being dismissive, but you know, you just read your quick little, this one a guy, what do they talk about, sermonettes for uh, Christianettes, this kind of thing. You know, so you just read your tiny little thing and you're like, that's good, I'm good. That's not good. That's like having a banana for the whole day. It's not going to work. You need to have a meal. You need to have good uh, healthy food, not junk food, and then you need to have a good, solid meal, or meals, as I like to have in the real life. They're not always good, but they are big. It's interesting, the verb tense here, so Paul uses the word trained, sometimes it's translated nourished. What's interesting, I think, about this is the verb tense is an active verb tense. And so what that means is Paul isn't saying You need to be nourished one time in your life, and then you're good to go. He's not saying you need to be nourished every Sunday. Make sure you get to church so you can get filled up and you're good for the week. He's saying you need to actively be filled up and nourished and trained up on a regular basis. Can you do it 24-7? No. You need a little bit of napping here and there, and you got to do some other things, I'm sure. But you need to make sure you're taking those times regularly. I would say this. I hope you are eating two, three meals a day. Some of you skip meals and stuff like that. You're crazy people. I hope you're eating two, three meals physically a day. I think at least you should be doing that spiritually, having those meals, having a quiet time for yourself, and then taking some other time carved away to be considering these things. We must regularly and consistently be taking in the word of God. Now, Paul continues this metaphor comparing physical health to spiritual health. And the next thing that he points out is, and again, he's writing to Timothy, that the healthy minister, and we can apply it to us as the healthy Christian member of a congregation, the healthy minister is taking in good food, but also taking steps to avoid spiritually unhealthy food. So we, yes, we take in good food, but think of it this way. If you had a salad, every now and again I get motivated, and I have a salad. And I'll eat my salad, and I'm very proud of myself. And then I'll go back in the kitchen, and I'm like, I'm starving. I ate grass, you know. And I'll go up into the cabinet, 
and I'll grab a bag of cookies, and I'll finish it. The whole bag of cookies. That whole bag of cookies has just nullified that entire salad. I shouldn't have even bothered with the salad here and perhaps skipped the cookies as well here. You, you catch me? And so, yes, we're taking in good food, but we also want to take steps to avoid spiritually unhealthy food. And that's what Paul, I think, says. Look at verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with a bag of cookies. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Some of your versions say profane old wives' fables. That's probably not politically correct anymore. Uh, That's what Paul wrote. (laughs) Abstain, keep yourself from irreverent, silly myths. Old wives' fables. That's, That's those false teachings. That's those traditions that the apostate elders that we've been talking about in our study of this book, that they have adopted, and Paul's referenced in a number of times in this, in this book, Paul tells him, you know, don't even bother with them. Stay away from them. You know about them. You're familiar with them. If somebody asks you, but you know what, just move on from them. You don't need to, know, to spend all your time with these things and go down these paths. Remember those people, they, they had like, we have secret knowledge. Yes, you're not going to find this in your Bible, but God showed me. And only me. And now I'm going to share it with you for you buy my book, 1999. Or, you know, one of these kinds of things. Timothy's priority, it was to be on the words of God, not on the words of man. And again, how easily Timothy could have been distracted. How easily Timothy could have become an expert in false teaching. And, I, and there is a place for those folks. I don't think that's the place for the pastor. There's a place for those other folks. They can come in, they can do their thing, or we can purchase their book or whatever for the expert on those things. But the pastor needed to be focused on the words of God that he would present to the people. Paul points out those teachings. Notice he calls them silly. There's a way that this is worded, that it could be this way, that these are the kinds of teachings that silly people focus on. Timothy, don't lose your focus. Say, focus on the word of God. Instead of these things, Timothy says, rather train yourself, Paul says, rather train yourself for godliness. So in the physical realm, we might say, watch your diet and exercise. Right? That, isn't that what your doctor says? My doctor, he came in a little while ago. He walked in the room. He's on the other side of the room. He's like, you need to lose five pounds. I'm like, you need to. <laughs> yes, sir, or whatever. He said, watch your diet and exercise. He went to, I don't know, 10 years of school to tell me to watch my diet and exercise. That's your solution or whatever? Isn't there a pill to help me or whatever? But that's it. It's that simple. And so Paul, he's been telling him, watch your diet. You stay away from the silly things. And then he says, but train yourself for godliness. That's the exercise part. Now, this word train here is different from the one in verse 6. Remember the one in verse 6 was translated alternatively as nourishment, I believe it was there. Here, the word, Paul used a different word altogether. Same word in the English, different word in the Greek. Here, we're talking about physical exercise, vigorous physical exercise. I'm telling you a lot about myself today. The older I get, I begin to qualify a lot of things as exercise. Taking the trash to the top of the driveway. I exercise today. That's not what Paul's referring to. Vigorous physical exercise is what Paul is talking about here. And in the ancient Greek culture, which had a lot of influence on the present, at that time, Roman culture, they put a high value on physical exercise, Olympic games, those sorts of things, high value on physical exercise. And Paul here, he tells Timothy that the same work and the same commitment that these folks are putting towards physical exercise, you should be putting toward your pursuit of spiritual exercise or your pursuit of godliness. I heard the story recently of one of the young women that is playing on our U.S. women's national soccer team. Anybody get up at 5 a.m. this morning to watch the game? Did anyone TiVo it or whatever the term is these days? Can I tell you what they did? I should not tell you? I won't tell you. I will tell you this. There was a young lady on the team. There is a young lady on the team. She's 17 years old. 17. I know. Can you believe it? She's that good. 
She played her first professional soccer game in the spring of her senior year in high school. And in order to play in that particular game, she had to miss her prom. I know, it's horrible. Oh, it's terrible. But she missed her prom. When you are a high-level high athlete in that regard, there will be things that you can't do, that you have to put aside in order to do the things you want to do. And she had to make, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a professional athlete. And so she had to put aside uh, her prom in order to do that. Proms, proms are fine. But for her to reach her goal, she'd have to forgo that prom. And there are many things that the athlete must not do which will enable them to do what they want to do. Instead of, here for Timothy, instead of wasting time on myths and fables, Timothy should instead vigorously exercise himself to godliness. Here's an important uh, phrase I think we can learn and just sort of put it up in our head and we got a, a whole sermon right there in our head. You will never drift into godliness. You'll never become more godly by just sitting around doing nothing. But you can certainly drift away from godliness by doing nothing. And so just as an athlete must devote themselves to attain their goals, so too the person looking to grow in godliness. Now, how do we do that? Well, through the reading of God's word. But the reading of God's word carefully and thoughtfully. I'm sure you've been where I have been, where you finish your, your daily reading, your chapter, a couple chapters in the Bible, and you shut the book, and then your wife says, what'd you read today? And you're like, I don't even remember. It was three minutes ago, and I completely forget because I really just glossed over it. I didn't actually thoughtfully and carefully read it. Meditating on God's word. That comes from a strange word which talks about a, ch a cow chewing the cud. And the cud is like regurgitated food. Cows have four stomachs. And so it, it hits all four of them before it hits something else. Uh, and so they just chew it over, chew it over, regurgitate it, chew it over again. That's the word for meditating, truly thinking on these things. What does this mean? How does this apply? And so on and so forth. We grow in godliness and we vigorously exercise through the study of God's word as a group like we're doing right now, but also individually. And so this is gathering helpful resources to expand your study. It's going deeper. It's asking good questions. It's finding those helpful resources. We grow in, our, in godliness through prayer. And again, prayer in all its many forms. I think it was our first study in the book of 1 Timothy. Prayer that praises God. Prayer that repents. Prayer that brings our requests to God. We ask of him. And then certainly prayers that we yield ourselves to his will. We grow in godliness through the pursuit of deep and sincere fellowship, where we're actively looking to develop relationships with others that will build both of us up spiritually. And we move way past the, you know, crazy weather out there, huh? But we begin to go deeper with one another. I think another way we grow in, the, in godliness is by sharing our faith. And we take that step and we speak into the lives of others. I'm not going to share it. I had a story. I'm not going to share it. There was this couple yesterday I was talking to. And I was exhausted. I was so tired. And I just wanted to go home as soon as I could. And uh, I was helping them with something. And uh, they, they, they said, I'm trying to make the story quick as possible. Uh, they said, well, we just try to be good people. And I said, oh, boy, this is 20 minutes. And so I said, and how's that working for you? And she, they said, great. And I said, well, good for you. And I, and I left. <laughs> and I was like, I just got to get out. I wish I would have stopped and, and I'm confessing my sin. Okay. I should have gone deeper. But when we share our faith, we say no to ourselves. We, we step out in boldness. We remind ourselves of the wonderful truth that God, of the impact that God has had in our lives. It's so good to share your faith with other people. And I should have done it yesterday, but I didn't. I was tired. I'm sorry. I had a long day. Anyway, thank you. She forgives me. Uh, verse 8, it says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
Now, some people will look at this verse. I've heard people comment on this verse, and in doing so, they've minimized and they even have disparaged uh, physical exercise. You know, so, hey, you want to go work out? You're like, you know, bodily exercise profits a little. or whatever. That, that's not Paul's point. Paul's not saying, like, you know, those people, they like to exercise, but us people, we like. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is simply getting to this point, and if you read the Apostle Paul, regularly Paul references athletic type of events, people running races, people boxing, all this stuff. It seems Paul kind of enjoyed it, watched these things. I don't know if he did it. He was getting a little bit older. He may not have been out there running around, but he certainly enjoyed uh, them. He wasn't against them. Uh, so Paul is not minimizing physical exercise. He's just pointing out the importance uh, and perhaps even the greater importance of spiritual exercise. And again, he uses the word godliness. Really old versions translate that as godlikeness. That sounds like kind of new agey, but that was the common use of the word in older English. And it was a word which meant to have the character and the attitude of God. And that's certainly a good thing, right? To have the character and the attitude of God. And in Paul's thinking, that's a far more worthy goal than merely phys being physically fit. Physically fit's good. Go for it. But a far more worthy goal is to have the character and the attitude of God. And so... We ought to care for our bodies. Exercise is a part of that care. But again, bodily, ex bodily training at best benefits us only during this life. While godly training, I'll tell you, you think, well, that'll just benefit me for the future. No, but godly training is going to benefit you tremendously here on the earth. And it will certainly get you prepared for eternity. There's an alternative, simpler translation of this verse it says it this way, bodily exercise is good for a while, while exercising unto godliness is good forever. And since it is good forever, logically then, it makes sense to vigorously give yourself to it. Paul goes on in verse 9, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That goes back to verse 8, that's the saying, bodily exercise is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way. Paul's saying, look, you can take that, that saying, that message, that truth, you can take that to the bank, he says. Verse 10, for to this end, we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Because it is true, because training for godliness is a trustworthy statement, we give ourselves to toil and strive for these things, he says. That's the end of which Paul is speaking here. And he's exhorting Timothy to train toward. He says, to this end we toil and strive. Notice that. He says, to this end we toil and strive. There's two things that catch my attention about that. First is similar to the point I made earlier about Timothy. And so not only is Paul not saying... That this is, you know, this is not something that you and I, Timothy, really need to be worried about. This is for those people. But just, just be aware. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul includes himself in this saying, we toil and we strive. The, the second thing is, he says, I'm not above it. Yes, I'm now an apostle, and Timothy, you're going to be the, the bishop of this congregation. We're not above it. We haven't arrived we haven't grown all we're going to grow. There's still more for us to learn and to apply and to grow as we are continuing to be transformed and have that phrase again, the attitude and the character of God. Timothy, Paul says, we have not, this is not something we have already attained. And so to this end, we toil and we strive. Notice he doesn't say, and to this end, we toiled and strived. He's saying we're presently doing it. This is a race that Paul is continuing to run. And Paul knew that he could not rest on his laurels. I've done so much. Now it's time for me to just coast. And I'll, yeah, I'm getting older. I'm getting cranky, but that's what old people do. No, you, no, we don't. We do. A lot of us do, but we shouldn't. 
It reminds me, have you ever been in an airport now and they have those moving sidewalks there? They're escalators, but flat. It reminds me of the person, and my kids used to do this, they would get on the escalator, the, the moving walkway, going the other direction. And you know, if you move quick enough, you can advance, but the second you stop, you shoot back to where you were before. And so you have to keep moving forward. We live in a culture that is moving in a different direction. And the moment we stop and we're like, you know what, I, I've really given a lot of effort. I, I've read the Bible five days this week. And so I'm going to take off the sixth and seventh day of the, of the week or whatever. You'll see its impact. You know, I've been to church. I've been there three times this month. I'm going to take off this Sunday. You'll see its impact. You know, I'm no longer really going before God and saying, Lord, what do you want to show me through this word? I'm reading it, yeah, but I'm not really investing myself even into the time. You will see its impact. You will begin to coast back on that moving walkway. Notice here with me, Paul uses two words. He says toil and he says strive. The word toil, the definition of that word here in this language is to grow weary, tired, and exhausted from labor. I told you earlier, that's what I felt I did yesterday. I toiled. I grew weary, tired, and exhausted from labor. Let me ask you this. Is that a word that you would use to describe the effort with which you train yourself for godliness? Is that a word that you would use to describe your effort with how you train yourself for godliness, that you grow weary, tired, and exhausted from labor? The next word Paul uses is the word strive. You'd be interested to note that the Greek word for this is where we get our English word agonize. And so again, you ask that question, can your efforts toward your spiritual growth be described as agonizing? Now the picture that Paul is painting is of an athlete that is straining and giving his or her best to win. I was watching yesterday uh, women's powerlifting. I have no idea either why I was watching it, but it was on. And, you know, that's where the bar's down on the ground with the big things on the side, and, you know, they got to get it up above their head, this kind of thing. And so there was all these women, and they were, they were powerlifting, and they were doing it. And as they're going down there, and the clock is counting down, ready, set, lift. And these ladies, and you would hear them scream as they would get this thing, and then scream as they get it from here up to here. They were agonizing in their training. That's what Paul has in mind here. So here's the reality. If you want to excel in your Christian walk, now, by the grace of God and for the glory of God, never forget that. Any power you have to walk this walk is by his grace and his empowering. And it should always be for his glory. Man, if I memorize these verses, they're going to put my name up on a wall. And everyone's going to say, you should talk to that guy. Man, he knows everything about the Bible. And now that's for your glory. And you've gotten off track. But if you're doing these things by the grace of God and for the glory of God, if you want to excel in your Christian walk, it will require effort, it will require diligence, and it will require sacrifice on your part. But again, if in the natural, men and women are willing to strive in that way for at the very best an earthly accolade, how much more should we as followers of Christ toil and strive for eternal accolades? And again, now, how do you do this? By how here, I'm not referring to, well, you got to read your Bible more. you got to pray more. you got to go to church. I'm not referring to that, by that how. What I'm referring to when I say, how do we do this, I'm referring to the heart attitude. What should our heart attitude be as we are striving and toiling for these things. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. He continues, I think he gives us the answer. He says, because we have our hopes set on the living God. Some other versions translate that we have our trust set on the living God. I'm reminded of what the psalmist wrote. This is Psalm chapter 20. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We do not set our hope or our trust in chariots and horses, as we might if we were about to go off into battle. We don't set our hope in any other person or church or ceremony that we took place in. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I took my Holy Communion. Any of these types of things 
that we may have undergone. We don't set our hope in those things. We don't even set our hopes on ourselves, even as we are toiling and as we are striving. And if I work a little harder, I'll be able to accomplish this. We don't even put our hopes on ourselves. Our eyes, according to the Apostle Paul here, aren't on ourselves. It's not on others. It's not on what we possess. But our eyes are firmly fixed. Notice what he says, on the living God. Our relationship is with a living God. And ultimately, it is that that we need to be pursuing, it, that relationship that we need to be pursuing, pursuing. And here's where I think many Christians get off track. And here's where I think in my walk with Christ and over the years is where I've got off, got off track. And that is I've begun pursuing the things we do rather than him. And so I've begun to pursue how many books I can read or how, how many verses in the Bible or chapters or books in the Bible that I can read or how long my time of prayer was or how much time I gave to serving this week or how many times I went to church this week and I began pursuing those things. And I forget that I'm pursuing him as I'm doing those things. And I think that's where a lot of times we get off track. Our eyes are focused on all this stuff we're doing and we lose focus on him. We forget all about him. I do the same type of thing around the house. I'm busy. I'm trying to make the home a nice place for my wife so that she can come home and feel sort of in a relaxed environment to live in that particular place. And then I'm mean to her as I'm doing it. And I've missed the whole point altogether. You see where I'm going? I've neglected the relationship even as I was trying to benefit the relationship. It's a mistake we make here. We know that all those things, reading the word, praying, fellowshipping, etc., we know that they are an important per part of a godly person's life, but they must not become the pursuit of the godly person's life. The pursuit of a godly person's life should be, it has to be, the living God himself, the one who brought us into relationship with him. The living God needs to be the pursuit of our godliness, and it's as we draw near to him through those things, that a God-likeness is created in us. And again, by that I mean the character and the attitude of God. It's as if we're on a road that is marching toward God. And on that road, there's all these offshoots that are going in different directions. And some of them, you know, drinking, you know, and chasing after men or women, depending on your preference there. Or, you know, going this way, going that way. But some of them even memorizing the Bible studying 50 chapters a day, great things. But I think what begins to happen is we find ourselves way over here, and I memorize 50 chapters in the Bible, and God is way here, and we're getting further and further and further away. He's the one we need to be pursuing. I, I really like this phrase, and it's been very helpful to me. I said it earlier, something to the effect of sometimes a, a little phrase can preach an entire sermon to yourself if you remind yourself what the phrase means. And another one of those in my life has been practicing the presence of God. It comes from a book that uh, Brother Andrew wrote. But practicing his presence. And that preaches this, the entire sermon that I need, is to know that God is with me as much as when I'm sitting here studying this word than when I'm in the backyard mowing the lawn. His presence is with me in the exact same way in both of those instances. And one doesn't have to be more spiritual than the other. And I can nurture my relationship with God even as I'm cutting the lawn or doing the banking or whatever it might be, some menial task here, running errands. So I encourage you, practice the presence of God. Fix your eyes. We fix our eyes. We set our hope on the living God, who Paul goes on to say is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. So remember, the same God that saves us will be the God that sustains us. Thus, we need to keep fixing our eyes on him the entire uh, walk of our lives until we come to the end of our days. That the same God that delivered us from the penalty of sin will be the God that daily delivers us from the power of that sin. That I gotta give into it because it's just so strong. No, he can, and he does deliver us from that, but you must keep your eyes on him, depending on him. Now, Paul uses the phrase there, the savior of all people. And there have been many over the centuries, really, that have used that statement and they've come to what we would call a universalistic conclusion. 
where they've come to the doctrine of universalism. And the doctrine of universalism essentially teaches that eventually all of humanity will go to heaven, will be saved. Jesus Christ is the savior of all people. And, you know, there may be a time of suffering and purging and purgatory and all this kind of stuff, but eventually all will be saved. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul did not believe in the doctrine of universalism. Nowhere in Scripture can you go to other places and say, well, see, this teaches the doctrine of universalism. But there were people that have taken this phrase out of context, and it was not what Paul intended. What Paul is saying is this. Jesus Christ is the Savior of all people potentially. Potentially. Jesus Christ, however, is not the Savior of all people actually. Every person can be saved because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every person can have their sins forgiven. Every person, despite the fact that God is holy and that man is unholy and does not measure up to the perfect standard of God, every person can have their sins forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ. But sadly, as we know, not every person will. Because not every person will respond to the gift of salvation that has been offered to them. That's the point Paul makes when he goes on and he says, especially to those who believe. He's the savior of all people, potentially, especially to those who believe, actually. Those are those that will be saved. It's a gift. And as with any gift, it must be received and made one's own. If the nice little wrap box with the little bow sits off on the side and it remains there forever, it will have no impact on that person's life. An unopened gift sitting off on the side somewhere does no one any good. For the gift to be enjoyed, it has to be received, it has to be opened, and it has to be made one's own. And so the question, as we look at a passage like this, that we have to ask ourselves is this. Have you, have I, you can ask it of yourself, have I put my trust in this Savior? And if you have, are you daily doing so for the enabling you need to live a life of godliness? Is your hope him? Is your trust him? Are you daily fixing your eyes on him? Jesus Christ is the Savior of all people. He has indeed made adequate provision, but not all have received. Have you? Have you received the gift of salvation that comes through Christ Jesus? Well, it's a very simple thing to do, honestly. It has the most profound impact of all eternity, your eternity, and you expect it would be rather difficult. In reality, it's not. It's, a, it's as simple as coming to God in honesty and in sincerity and saying, Lord, I come short of your standard, your holiness. Lord, I need you. And Lord, I believe you've made provision for me through Jesus Christ. And I receive the gift of salvation. And you do that in a sincerity and honesty of heart. And the Lord does a transforming work in your life. And as it says in 1 Corinthians, you become, 2 Corinthians, you become a new creature in Christ. The old man has passed away. The new man has come to life. All because of a prayer that you pray in simplicity and honesty from your heart. And so if you're not yet a believer here, and listen, there's a lot of people that sit and they hear and they hear and they hear and they hear. And there's a part of them that's like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. But they do nothing with it. Don't let that be you. Not you, sir. Use. Don't let that be you. There needs to come a point in time where you say, you know what, today, today's the day. I've been kind of filing this thing away. I'm going to get back to it. But today is the day where you come to God in humility. You come to God in simplicity. You pray a simple prayer like the one I mentioned. And Jesus Christ does that transforming work in your heart, both for this life and the next. Now, for those of us that are believers, and here we are. We're in a church. I know many of you pretty well. I know most of us in this room are believers. I think there's a word for us here as well. This isn't just for those that need to become a Christian for the first time. I think the word for us is to purpose ourselves today 
to practice God's presence in a fresh way each day and throughout our days. That we, we sort of we take inventory of our lives and we, we begin to challenge ourselves with this question. Could one rightly describe my pursuit of godliness as one of toil and agony? One I'm really striving to attain. Man, why do you work so hard as an athlete? Well, because I want to win. That's why. Well, you know, I mean, you're good enough. Your, your team is average. I don't want to be average. I want to win this thing. And so I'm going to get here a little before everybody else, and I'm going to stay a little later, and I'm going to work a little extra hard, and I'm going to toil, and I'm going to strive so I can win this thing. Can someone properly, can you, who cares about other people? Can you properly define your pursuit of godliness in that way? Well, that's what Paul said to Timothy. And who knows how Timothy read that. Maybe God immediately put his finger on an area. And so I would encourage you, if, if that's what happened to Timothy, I'd encourage you, allow God to bring conviction. I've been a Christian for 30 years. When was the last time you responded to God's conviction? And if it wasn't this last week or year or months, that's a problem. Maybe you've grown complacent and comfortable. Allow God to bring conviction, and as he does, respond to that conviction. Amen? Are you with me? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And even as your word is uh, sometimes it's challenging, we don't feel like we're being screamed at by our coach who has no expectation for our success and is hoping we'll just quit the team. Rather, we really, Lord, every time we come to your word, even when we, we come to a challenging and a difficult word, there's this sense of you putting your arm around our shoulder and say, look, I'll walk with you in it. I'll help you through this process. Lord, you're with us and you want good for us. And we delight in that truth. And so Lord, if there are entanglements that we need to kind of cut off and lay aside, at least I can't pray for everybody, but for myself, Lord, I purpose to lay those aside this week. Lord, if there's things that we need to be doing to investing ourselves in, Lord, I, for myself, Lord, I want to be doing that this week. And Lord, if there's been a tendency in my heart and in our hearts to take our eyes off of heaven and become distracted, even with good things here on the earth, Lord, we want to purpose ourselves afresh this week to fix our eyes on you and practice your presence throughout this week. We believe that's what uh, Paul was calling his friend Timothy to. We believe that's what you're calling each of us to. And we believe Paul's motives and yours is for our good and our benefit. And so, Lord, we give ourselves afresh this week in our pursuit of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.